The presenting sponsor of EcoCheck with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a volunteer-run, nonprofit 501c3 research and human services charitable organization providing a public research repository and studies the effects of all role-playing game formats, accessibility, and inclusiveness considerations for role-playing gamers, and the potential for RPGs to help various populations achieve their educational, recreational, or therapeutic goals. The founder of RPG Research is Hawk Robinson, and he has been wonderfully supportive of my creative efforts over the years, and previously appeared as a guest on EgoCheck back in January 2017 on Episode 7. So go back in time and check out our conversation about all the great work he's doing. Donations to RPG Research directly support research and community programs to help people improve lives. And more information for these programs can be found at rpgresearch.com slash donate. Another episode of Ego Check with the Id DM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and joining me this week is Jana Flesher. Jana, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me to be on your podcast. I really am excited. Yes, thank you very much for your time. I actually before we started, you were talking about how busy you are currently with with work and other activities. So thank you very much for your time. Jana and I met I think, is it three years ago now? Yes. I think three years ago through a, a mutual friend uh, who was also a guest on this podcast last September, Aaron Retka. I interviewed him about his work with Geeks Who Drink and how he writes all their quizzes. So he had introduced us to Jenna when you moved out here for work uh, because you are a midwife. And you that got is a, correct. You got a job out here. So that is your career, and you also have a long history of playing role-playing games, and he thought, hey, these two people might have things in common. So we had uh, got together once you uh, moved out here, and we've been gaming off and on since that point in time, which has been a lot of fun. It has been. It has been. It's been good getting to know you and Emily and your family. Yes. And for those listening at home, Emily is my wife. Uh, mention her from time to time on the show. She has not been on the show yet. I have offered that. She she has not taken me up on it. I, I keep telling her we can do the Internet's best episode-by-episode episode breakdown of the OC uh, podcast. She has not taken me up on that either. We'll keep working on it, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll encourage her to do that. So sort of a, a common question I'll ask folks uh, as we're getting started here is, you know, one of the things I've been in, impressed by and in, in getting to know you here over the last few years is your zeal for gaming and also some of the skills you bring to the table uh, as we're playing different systems, different games. I think uh, you've been quite willing to take on pretty much any system. We've played D&D, Numenera, Dungeon World. I think a few other systems that have uh, that I haven't been able to make, and other players have. When did this all get started for you? How long has this been going on for you? Yeah, so I probably started really running role-playing games in my mid-thirties. So, so a, a later about, start. 
Yeah. <laughs> so probably about 13 years ago, I'd say. Okay. Um, maybe, maybe a little less than that, maybe 10 years ago, actually. And, um, I had only ever played role playing games once before that point. And that was when I was 11. I remember very distinctly one night sitting around my grandfather's kitchen table and I was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons. So that was the very first time I had ever played. Um, it was only for that night, but I have very clear memories of that game. Uh, so it's, it stuck with me for a long time. And when I was fresh out of uh, my graduate degree and working, I had some friends that reintroduced me to the game and I was hooked and started running my own games. My husband at the time and I would run joint games together. So we'd co-run games and it was, it was quite fulfilling. It was a great creative outlet. We introduced games to our friends who had never done anything like that before. And that was just a lot of fun to see people um, get out of their comfort zone a little bit, but also really have a good time and uh, and play a little bit again and be imaginative. And uh, yeah, it was it was just a really great experience. And Excellent. I've enjoyed it so much that I've just continued doing it as my hobby and almost my second career in a way it's like a side job because i tend to run a lot of games so yeah so right now you are dual wielding at least uh tomb of annihilation campaigns that you're yes. running you're running one for for me and several other people i know one for another group and are you still doing the online one as well uh yeah so there's actually there's two um so i'm running the tabletop game with, you know, that's live and in person with you and a few others. Also, I'm running a Tomb of Annihilation game through Roll20 with some friends who live in other states. And, um, and then I was running a little side dungeons or, um, dungeon world game actually with a group of uh, other friends and coworkers who had never played before. Um, and that was, that was pretty fun. I did that recently. And then I'm, I'm actually a PC in a few other games. So Yes, you are a, a PC in the campaign I'm running right now, where you're mm -hmm. down in the Sunless Citadel. Yes. And that should be wrapping up next time we play. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, you are a bard in that campaign, which is good times. Yes. And I'm a bard in your campaign. So uh -huh. There's been this kind of meta back and forth between the two <laughs> bards, sort of trying to one-up each other in a way, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's been enjoyable. Uh, going back to something you said a few minutes ago, you said, you know, you had this experience when you played when you were about 11 years old, and then there was quite a hiatus until, you know, 10, 13 years ago. What was it? Uh, you know, about a decade ago that sort of got you back into it? Well, a friend of mine invited me to play, and um, it's, 
I said, sure. I said, that sounds like so much fun and I'd really like to do it. And it was, I believe he was using castles and crusades rules. Um, and I just, I had such a good time at the table, just using my imagination. Um, storytelling is a lot of fun for me thinking on my toes, coming up with solutions to problems. And I, I really like role playing too. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what kind of captivated me about it. I think one of the, one of my favorite gaming moments was from early on in the Tomb of Annihilation campaign when you were role-playing some tabaxi we were talking to and just out of the side of your mouth in the middle of a sentence purred and then just kept going on as if nothing happened. And I sort of made a big show of it. I stopped the game. I was like, wait, you need an inspiration coin or something for that. I was just so impressed with with that bit of uh, business. So, you know, I just want to acknowledge that publicly. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, what would a DM do with their inspiration? You may not want to give me inspiration. That might not be great for you guys. I don't know. I know. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I think I even wrote a few things on Twitter about that where I was like, that should be a thing. Players should be able to give the DM inspiration. Because it kind of works like the edge of the empire rules for star wars where you have these force points and they actually go back and forth between the players and the the gm so the players can use them but when they use them they flip over to the dark side and then the gm can use them so there's always this ebb and flow of right the players can get a boost or the dm can get a boost and it's a it's a very narrative game so that mechanic works well with with D D, it's a little bit crunchier so i don't know if that would would fly uh, but something for, I think, for people to experiment with. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea. And it just, it does deserve some some more thought, I think. It would be a kind of a cool addition to the game. So one of the things that I, I thought would be interesting to talk about, since we're both running games and sometimes for the same group of players, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of overlap in, in some of the campaigns. And you were talking about the creativity and coming up with NPCs. And I think Tomb of Annihilation requires you to have these tag-along NPCs. And I know in the game I'm running, there's been a collection of NPCs that are following you around for a brief period of time. Or invariably, some of the players can't make it, so you run their PC as an NPC. How have you done that over the years? What works well? What doesn't work well? What what have you learned from the really 10 plus years you've been doing this? Well, I find that really only recently has it really been more of a issue, particularly in Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, you have PCs who are sometimes hiring, you know, other people to go on the adventure with them for some, just some extra manpower. Um, and then there are just a lot of different characters to manage. Uh, certainly I find that, um, having a really good, uh, pen and paper system for keeping track of like hit points, um, 
skills, things like that can be, can be very beneficial. I found that having, um, and this, you can't have this for all games, but having, uh, the tomb of annihilation in the roll 20 system actually makes it a little bit easier. There are tools in there that help me even with the game that I run for, for you, um, just doing all that bookkeeping and, um, keeping things, uh, organized. Um, I think you had even mentioned that. I think at the conclusion of our last game that you said even for any campaign or game you want to run, you hope that there's a Roll20 component to help you keep track of everything. (laughs) Right. And really, you could, with Roll20, you wouldn't even need that. You can can create your own game with Roll20, you know, and all you need to do is make your own tokens and um, attach different abilities to them and hit points and armor class. And so you can... You can actually create your own, you know, online gaming component for any game you want to run using that system, which is it's, it's great. I, I find it uh, has been very helpful. But that being said, definitely when it comes to things like running a battle, it can it can kind of get a little bogged down running all those NPCs in a battle. And that's something that I've been struggling with a little bit. I tend to be kind of pedantic sometimes when I'm, when I'm actually uh, running, a, running a battle. And I've really been trying to get myself to let go of being so exact about hit points. Like when an enemy combatant gets you know, really low down on the hit points rather than just having them hang on till they're zero, just letting them fall. And uh, so I've been I've been trying to work on myself, doing a little therapy to kind of let that go <laughs> and let and let those uh, let those those uh, those enemies and creatures fall. Um but there's a part of me that I love having a creature that's on its last leg, you know, and is about ready to just keel over or it's on its knees and just suddenly it gets that one last chance to like drive a knife into somebody's calf or something like that, you know, just this last little bit, just there's some theater in that too. So, so there is a, there's some good things about waiting until that last minute. but And I believe that's a common issue is keeping that narrative flow going in combat and not just it. And I, I find myself having to remind myself of this all the time of it's not just rolling dice and doing the mechanical stuff, but making it more of a story. And I, I think the more you have to manage whether it's NPCs or other environmental effects or traps or the number of enemies that that you're managing, it just adds to that load and some of the narrative stuff can fall by the wayside. So how do you remind yourself to to do those things? You said you were doing therapy, so I'm curious what's working. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I think lately I really have been trying to remind myself to role play in battle, to um, 
to actually describe what's going on, to describe what the wounds are or what the blow looked like or what the magical effect was. And sometimes I, you know, some days I'm really on and I, I can do that. And some days maybe I'm more, more tired and I'm, it's not as easy for me to do. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one reason that I really, there's certain battles I love. Like I love zombie battles because zombie battles, you can really, I feel like it can be really creative with those. And zombies are kind of cool because they can keep getting back up. I mean, you think you've knocked them down and sometimes they just twitch and get back up and start crawling towards you again. So that makes for really good theater. Um and it, like when we have like the battle we had um, in the last game where you, we have some animal like creatures who may not um, be as uh, predictable if they're not being controlled by their handler, that can be that can be an interesting um way to role play and bring something different into the battle. So, um, especially when one of their riders falls asleep (laughs) (laughs) from a spell that a certain bard casts. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so just, you know, thinking about, okay, this animal is in the middle of this battle. It's writer is dead. You know, what's it going to do? Is it going to lash out? Is it going to run away? Um, and just trying to throw some creativity into that. So, and what have you noticed about, cause I believe you've been exposed to a wider variety of rule systems than I have. And I don't even think it's that close. Like how do the rules influence your ability to do some of this creative role-playing storytelling, um, mm-hmm. how do they help and how do they hinder that? Like what? I think the more rules they are, honestly, the more it hinders me because again, I tend to be kind of pedantic, um, by nature. So, um, the less rules that there are or the more concise they are, the more freeing it is for me. Like I can, I feel like I can actually use a little bit more of my role playing skills. So one of the reasons why I really love uh, Dungeon World quite a bit, uh, because it does allow for that uh, flexibility. Um, And I've actually used the Dungeon World character templates to, you know, create new classes of characters for certain games. And it's kind of fun, actually, to create uh, create moves that people can have and spells. And they have this skill and that skill that's special. And it, you can really craft a nice character sheet with some really interesting um, components to it. And uh, that game, I think, more than any, allows me to be very creative. But 5th edition has been nice. I feel that uh, what they did with the rules actually kind of loosened things up a little bit. And, uh, and it's been, it's actually been pretty enjoyable to run. I found it pretty easy. So and the only exposure I've had to, to Dungeon World is the kind of mini campaign you ran that was Game of Thrones. 
Right. Some mm-hmm. of the hijinks that happened in that game were <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite tragic and hilarious. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we, we had one character that was just hell-bent on self-destruction mm-hmm. and really seemed to push the boundaries of what are you going to let me get away with? And it seemed like the system allowed for that. And eventually the the boundaries of that system broke. (laughs) Yes, they did. I believe he tumbled out of a tower to his death. Yes. Uh, Yes. Which was, uh, I want to say spectacular, but not really. (laughs) It It was a fun, very fun game that you were running. Uh, but it seemed like the rules in that it just kind of similar to Edge of the Empire, where the rules didn't exactly tell you if you like succeed or not. It was a little bit more like nuance to it, or more more wiggle room, maybe is a better word. Exactly. Um, there's a lot more. I think because you have that, you know, you're rolling two d six, and zero through six is a failure. And, you know, you can describe that failure however you want, or you can have the PC describe, you know, how they failed um, their attempt to do whatever they were trying to do. And then the seven through nine, that's where things get really kind of nuanced. Um, the, the GM can give the PC some options as to what happens. It's con- it's what is considered a partial success is what they call it. So um, maybe you actually dealt damage, um, but you fall down onto your knee temporarily, or um, you lose your balance, or you drop your weapon. Um, you give them some options. You know you. You did an okay job, but it's it's not a complete success. And then a 10 through 12 is a total success. So it allows for a little bit more storytelling to go on with the battle, and it can make it a lot of fun. There's actually a lot more theater of mind with that game. I rarely in that game used minis or battle mats or anything like that. It was pretty much or theater of mind, which was also quite fun. Um, and that's what I need, I think, a lot of times as a GM is to have those those tools like battle mats and minis and stuff like that taken away from me. <laughs> so I become less focused on that and more focused on what's going on in my head and translating that to the players. So. I, this, I found that in... When I, because I really started DMing quite often with Fourth Edition, which was so tied to the tactics and a battle map or terrain, and the group I had had a ton of Dwarven Forge pieces, so it it was so visual. And mm-hmm. Your creativity with all that was you kind of had to make some extra efforts to do the description because everyone could see it. Like, oh yeah, there's my mini, and it moves five spaces and it does this like and mm-hmm. trying to describe that almost became extemporaneous um so it's been helpful for me mainly you know since i've you know moved here to minnesota and, and gaming with, with you and some other people we've played numenera a bit dungeon world some other games just that exposure to different systems i think it's helped me become a better player a better a better uh, dm or gm because you realize that the one set of rules isn't the only way of doing things. 
And I think all role-playing games, you can just borrow and steal and change things. That's <laughs> one of the great things about the hobby. Um, so if even though if it's not in the rules, if someone rolls a two on uh, some kind of check, you can decide, like, well, that's not only a failure, but something kind of bad happens. And if the players are okay with that, then you all just sort of run with it, and it's it just, I think, creates a little bit more of an interesting game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually used... I started running Rise of the Rune Lords a few years back and for a group of people. And the first few sessions, we actually used the Pathfinder rules, but um, the players, the PCs that I had were, they weren't really into the rules. There weren't, um, they were really more into role playing. And I found that they were struggling a little bit with, with Pathfinder. And so I converted it everything over to Dungeon World <laughs> and it worked great and they had a much easier time uh, playing the game actually well, and, go ahead oh, no go ahead That's, no I was just touching on something because uh, remind me one of the things I wanted to check in with you about because not only have you been running games but you've you've written different modules different adventures I think you were telling us over the weekend that you sort of stopped yourself from running a Buffy the Vampire Slayer system at one point. Right, yeah. So you've done quite a f fair share of adventure design. Yeah, I've tried at any rate. I mean, I certainly, I think for me, I've done less writing than I want to. I used to do a lot more when I was in Colorado Springs, writing modules and co-writing them with, like, Aaron and uh, and uh, my ex-husband, but um, I I have fantasies about having being able to actually write more um, gaming modules, and uh, you know the reason that I stopped writing that uh, Buffy adventure was just that I was frustrated with with the lack of time I had to do it. And uh, I really was feeling like, you know, if I really want to do this right, I really need to sit down and really do it, you know, have this organized, dedicated time to do it, um, do my research, figure out, you know, what kind of gaming system I want to use to run it. And, uh, and I just haven't been able to find that time with all the other hobbies I have and work and, um, my yoga practice and which are also things that are really important to me. Uh, but it sure is a fun idea. And I, I think about things about it from time to time and I write them down and, uh, and I think it would be fun. And the, the cool thing about the adventure was that I was going to set it in the 80s pre-Buffy. Mm. And um, and I thought that would be kind of a fun twist nice. to do that. So, yeah. Whether it's you writing or you reading something that's published, what are some of the things that hook you as enticements like, oh, I really want to run this or mm -hmm. uh, like, oh, I, this this sounds fun. I want to play this. 
For me, there has to be some sort of psychological element to it that's intriguing, um, where the PCs will, like, there's some element in there that will um, affect their character in a way that their character questions themselves and who they are. That is really what appeals to me where somebody actually has to be in their character and then they're challenged to actually be that character. Is there an example recently or even going back that, that comes to mind of, well, that did this really well. Yeah, like Rise of the Rune Lords, one of the things that I really liked about that is, you know, as you progress through that adventure, there are certain situations where where players are really their minds are really kind of messed with a little bit. And um, and I, and I think that the interesting thing about that game was the the game master had to keep track of the personality traits of their PCs and when they acted certain ways and to see what, what kind of tendency does this PC have? Like, do they tend to be greedy? Do they tend to be, um, do they tend to be malicious? You know, what's what's kind of their tick that they uh, that's kind of their weak spot. And um, and then towards the end of the game, you actually kind of use that against them a little bit. It's very interesting. It was an interesting game in that sense. Um so those are the kinds of things that I like. I like it when people are put into situations where there's kind of a moral dilemma or um, or they really have to, again, question who they are. And that, at least for, that for me, has been a challenge both as a player and as a, as a DM is sort of keeping track of that, even for myself as a player of, wait, what would my character want to do mm-hmm. rather than just sort of going along the mechanics of the game of like, oh, we're getting XP and treasure and we're exploring stuff and trying to solve problems, but getting into it a little bit more deeper mm-hmm. than that. Um, so how, how do you approach that both as a, from both sides of the screen? How, how do you keep that in the forefront of your mind? It's difficult. Um, and I'm not, I would say that I'm not the best at doing that, although it is one of the things that interests me the most. I have to sometimes come back every now and again to people's backstories and look at that and see, am I doing a good job and check in with myself on actually, you know, bringing them back to their backstory, because I think in some ways it's it's a GM's job to sometimes remind players of their backstory. And sometimes I do a good job at that and sometimes I don't. But there's interesting ways that you can pull that into um, into the game. Um, but that's that's one way to do it. But I'm not claiming that I'm great at doing that. Um, well, I, I mean, I've noticed your character 
or you playing your character um, in the the fifth edition game I'm running, your character of Lo, who is a bard, and I think you've described Lo as being sort of on another plane of existence in some ways, where she's not that tuned in to how other people perceive her right in some ways and there were i think some situations have come up where like you would say like oh i asked i asked this or i do this and you're like wait no lo wouldn't even be like aware that this is happening (laughs) right and you've you've shifted gears and kind of caught yourself and i've noticed like you it seems like you try to do that you try to be like no my character wouldn't wouldn't do this because it just wouldn't be on their radar but as a player, you're curious about a certain situation, but the character is not. And I just, those dynamics I always find pretty fascinating. Um, just not only being aware of them, but just like, what do you do with that information? Right, right. And what I, what I do when I'm, when I'm role playing an NPC or when I'm actually playing a PC is, I usually base that NPC or PC kind of off of bits and pieces of people I actually know, which or people I've seen in movies or characters on TV or something. So I have a really good, firm idea of what that that character's like and what they would do. I try not to metagame too much. I mean, it's it's always a real challenge, I think, for anybody to do that. And it's a challenge for the GM not to do that, too, in certain situations. Um, so, so I try to come back to, okay, this is who that character is. That's This is who they're based on, and I need to be that person. And that's when it really gets fun too is to try on those different hats and be different people and uh and walk in other shoes and it's that's just so much fun to me uh, yeah, i love that tip of basing characters on on someone you know or maybe even like a character from a show or something like that because mm-hmm. it gives you a bit of an anchor <laughs> to rely on um, I think it's just a good shorthand. Like in the campaign that I'm running for you, there's that, which I, I've written about this on Twitter, but but Meepo, who's this little kobold mm-hmm. character, <laughs> and I was like, well, Meepo is my son when he's throwing a tantrum, <laughs> <laughs> and I just turned that up to eleven, which my son actually does quite well as, and just I had that as a seed. I'm like, okay, that's the way I'm going to play this character. And just ran from there. Um, And it seems like if you do sort of base it on something that is tangible, it's different than rolling up some stats on a random table and be like, okay, this character is brave and they're selfless. And you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And, and back to like other things that, uh, hook me into sure, a, a campaign or a module. I I really do like an element of mystery. I like it when there's a mystery to be solved. Um, and 
I even like inserting other mysteries into the main campaign. I at one point came across this great module. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it before, and I cannot remember who wrote it, but it's called The Cotillion of Hours. Okay. And um, it's, a, it's a great little module. And essentially, you can insert it into any game during a um, – a like when people are doing their eight hour rest, you know, or they're doing their long rest and they're sleeping. It's a very cool module and uh, it's like they're all dreaming together and this having this dream sequence and they're all in the same dream sequence and they have this puzzle to solve and it's really very cool and you can keep bringing that module back into the same campaign because it's really hard to solve the mystery um it's a good little breaking point between chapters and a lot on campaign. So if you like finish up one chapter of the campaign, it's a nice little break between um, the one you just finished and the next one to do that little module for like maybe one gaming session. So as you're talking here, I was just looking it up. So is it through the Cotillion of Hours? Yes, that's that's right. Yeah. Purple Duck Games, and it looks like by Daniel J. Bishop. Yes. And this adventure, sleeping characters are invited to the cotillion of Somnos, the dreaming god. So this is just something that you could pop into anywhere. Yes, any game. Interesting. And it's and I've done it and it's awesome and the and the players just love it and uh, and it gives you kind of an opportunity to maybe help them. Um, with the campaign that they're in, um, there's there's a way that they can get information somehow that maybe they haven't been able to get about something in the campaign that they're they're playing in. So. Um, and that adventure is available through Drive Through RPG for yes, three dollars yes. and fifty cents. So. That's right. That's right. But that that sounds. Like a fun way to shift gears, at least for a temporary amount of time in a, in a campaign. To even just that idea of doing something while while players are sleeping. Yes, <laughs> it's great. It's if great. they ever sleep at the same time and they're not taking watches. <laughs> right. Well, well, the you know, as a as a GM, you can you can make anything happen you want, and perhaps. Um, Perhaps the people on watch just get really, really sleepy and they don't know why and they fall asleep and, you know, you can make that happen. Give me a perception yeah. check. I rolled an 11. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the the mist that's here, it just, you know, you're just really sleepy and right. you, you can, I guess, gamify it if you need to. You can, you can, for sure. You know, one of the, one of the struggles, I, I think, for, for some of the kind of goes in line with, with some of these things you're talking about with like mystery elements in a game tying in character backstories is attendance and that's something that's been a little bit of a challenge for me in recent years really of sort of starting an adventure getting backstories having players and then some of those players aren't there anymore and maybe some of the seeds that you're kind of hoping play out uh they just become almost irrelevant and mm -hmm. 
I guess mysteries could could happen that way too. So what what are your tips for managing that aspect? Uh, just the aspect of of players not being able to come. Right, and having yeah. to kind of shift on the fly of, oh, I guess we don't need to cover X, Y, and Z or cover it in a different way. Right. Um, I, I don't mind too much when players can't come as long as I've got at least got a quorum of players to work with. So um, I know I'm very understanding, and I, I kind of know that a lot of people desire to be there. There, but um, they can't necessarily be there. Uh, it, it really, it depends on the game if I do anything with that PC um, when they're absent. So if, if it's not really important for them to be um, part of the team, um, whether it's for, you know, battle backup or whatever, maybe they have a special skill that's pretty useful. You know, if, if it's not important for them to be in that game, I'll usually just kind of put them aside and we'll pretend that they're there, but I don't really do much with them. Um, if it's important for them to be there because I think that, um, they have skills that the group needs in order to um, to do a certain thing, like maybe maybe your your rogue is is not there that day, but there's a lot of roguey things to do, like find traps and stuff like that. Then I'm actively gonna be um, running that player as an NPC um, until they can get to the table again. Sure. So. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't bother me too much. Um, I I find that I have tried numerous ways of trying to schedule games so everybody can show up, and I haven't found a great solution to that problem. And I am not sure there is a good solution. Really, uh, we both go with the approach of at the end of. A session, having all those people get together and look at their calendars and say, okay, what works next? Right, exactly, exactly. Now, interestingly, the other Tomb of Annihilation group I'm running, they are very much all about playing the same day, the same time every week, if possible. And so that's a very different dynamic from like the third Saturday of the month or something like that. No, it's every Sunday. Oh, okay. Every Sunday, if I can run a game and there's enough people to play, they want to play. So it's, that's one of the reasons why they've gotten, they've, like actually gone much further ahead than your group has. Is Not because we're all like, oh, side quest, and we just go off on tangents for weeks no, at a time. <laughs> nothing to do with that. Um, it has to do with the frequency of how much they play. They play two or three times more than you've been able to. So, um, And that's great, but it's hard to find a group who are really able to do that. 
So um, I most of the games that I've run, most of the groups that I've run over the years, it's been exactly the situation where you try to find a day that works good for everybody. It's going to be a different day, you know, um, every month it seems like. And usually only once a month are people really able to come together. Uh, when I was living in Colorado Springs, we would all meet to watch Game of Thrones at my friend Laura's house. And subsequently, we always um, ran, I always ran the Game of Thrones game right before the show. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it worked really well. Get everyone in the mood. Yes, exactly. So it, so it worked really well, actually, to do that. Um, and then when the Game of Thrones game, when that season was over, we would wrap up that, uh, that part of the campaign. And then we would switch gears and go back into uh, Rise of the Rune Lords. So we kind of would switch back and forth um, throughout the year, which was that worked pretty well, actually. But we could usually get people together on Sundays for that. Um, well, you were talking about the Tomb of Annihilation group that's ahead of us, mm -hmm. and one of the topics that, as we were discussing what we should chat about here this evening that, that was on your mind is uh, the narrative drawbacks of PC invincibility. And I was wondering what that's like for you. <laughs> what are your thoughts <laughs> about that? Because it seems yeah. like you're approaching a... a pivot point perhaps for that group where this may come into play yes yes so um so i i find that one thing you know my friend clayton and i uh who we've gamed a lot together we 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 talk about this um the fifth edition is great but it's also you know by the time you're like sixth or seventh level you have you have a lot of hit points i mean it's it's an interesting number of hit points and um that's a very minnesota thing to say <laughs> you're you're adjusting to the midwest life very well it's amazing isn't very it amazing passive aggressive minnesota i like it yeah yeah, it's nice. yeah. That's an interesting number of hit points it's an interesting number of hit points and and i i feel like and I think I had mentioned this to you before that um, I think part of the great thing about playing role playing games is that there traditionally is this element of danger. Like your player could potentially die. And, um, and, a heroic act seems to me a bit hollow when there's no danger. Um, so I find that, you know, I've in the past, I, um, I've had PCs that have basically fallen on their swords, you know, mainly to, uh, save the rest of the PCs, but also just because it had good dramatic effect to do that. And that was what was interesting to me. Um, 
And I like that when I'm watching, you know, watching a show I really like, like uh, Joss Whedon, the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he's famous for this, you know, getting people really hooked into loving characters and then, you know, actually having something very tragic um, happen to a very well-loved character. And that's either great for you as a viewer because you can experience the range of emotions that go with that attachment and really appreciate it. Or for some viewers, it really upsets them and they write hate mail you know, because they're upset because you've killed like their favorite character off. I, I find that um, in role-playing, for me, it's very similar. I like having um, that... Uh, I like having that narrative arc where a, a PC can die and they... Um, or, or, or maybe... Uh, take a turn and become evil or, um, or maybe they were like really started out to be a character that was, uh, that was, you know, really underhanded and backstabbing and they have this epiphany and they turn themselves around. Um, that stuff is really interesting to me. And, I feel like when it's, you know, you have to deal 70 hit points in one blow to actually take somebody down, um, it's it's not as exciting sometimes. Now, I know that I'm not probably, um, there are people who wouldn't agree with me necessarily, but but that's just my personal opinion about it, so... It's a fun dynamic to talk about, and certainly as a player in various campaigns, I think the longer I'm involved in a campaign, the more attached I get to the character I'm playing. So almost the longer you have a character, I think there's the expectation of, well, I'm just going to keep being this character. And even in 5th edition, the characters at first level are very squishy. First level, if you run into a rat swarm and if the rolls go poorly, like that might be the end of it. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> so, like, the characters start out as very squishy, but I, I, I think I agree with you. If you, it depends on how you decide hit points, and if you say, well, take the max each time, then yeah, it adds up pretty quickly. And, you know, fourth edition was very, it was really hard to, to I think kill a, a character. And in fifth edition, maybe it's a, it's a little bit easier, mm -hmm. uh, but, but still, it, it's challenging. And I, I think as a as a DM, it I kind of go back to the narrative component you were talking about of just killing a character because you can or because it it you find that enjoyable or something. I don't think that's no. useful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but if a character does something that's reckless mm -hmm. or, if they're, or if the stakes are really high and the character decides, okay, this is something I want to do, it's worth the risk, or they do something that tactically is just, it's pretty clear like, this is not a wise decision <laughs> and they do it anyway, then there should be repercussions. They shouldn't just have this invincibility mode, mm -hmm. but it usually falls into some gray area. Cause I think, and it even happened to us in the two minute annihilation game where 
there is you introduced an NPC, uh, Sliver, who's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've talked about on this show before, one of the characters from the monster book I wrote. He had encouraged the group to go to this temple and find this treasure. And the whole setup was shady. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, we should not be listening to this guy. It was like clear <laughs> as day. And everyone was kind of on the fence on it. And my character sort of being out of his personality. And again, going back to that question of like, would my character do this? Like it was probably a little out of character for him. I think I was just like, yeah, we should go. We should go in and get that treasure because it's probably something we can use. And the whole temple turned into this big riddle trap thing that almost just set us all on fire and killed us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we got out of there, and the reward was not what we expected, or not what the what Sliver expected. And it was sort. Of, it just felt like a lesson had been taught to us. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, I feel like we were set up. And I sort of appreciated that where, okay, like one, I need to remind myself that my character probably wouldn't want to do this Two, just going after something for the sake of like, oh, it's XP or it's treasure, probably a bad idea in this, in this setting. And if one of us or multiple of us would have died there, it it would have been sad. It would have been frustrating. It would have been earned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, we earned that for making those decisions. I think we just sort of got distracted by the shiny thing. And that seems more appropriate, if that makes sense. I don't know what, I mean, you were on the other side of the screen there. So what did you make of that whole session? I, I was very amused. And I was actually kind of, um, I was thinking that, initially that you might totally turn him down and just drop him off there. But you, you went, you went along with it and decided to do it. And I was, I was actually pleased because partly because it's always fun to run through a new area with a group of people. It's, you know, a group of PCs. It's just, that's fun. Um, but but I, I like what happened in there. I thought that it had some good dramatic effects. And uh, and I love what happened when you came out with the uh, with the goblin exchange and um, pulling the wool over their eyes was was really fun. And uh, and yeah, that was a great that was a great game. Uh, there was a lot of good things going on in that game. And uh, and I'm glad that I'm glad that you appreciated it. Uh, that always makes me happy. So, yeah, I just I I I walked out of there feeling kind of admonished. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Tisk tisk, you should know better, people." Um, no, but it, it was fun, and I mean, spoiler alert, and maybe things are changed. Uh, who knows? But our our group had found a it was an alchemy jug, mm-hmm. and then the goblins were sort of waiting for someone to go in there and claim it. So we were surrounded by a fair number of goblins where it seemed pretty tenuous, uh, where we started to try to bargain with them. And we said, here, we'll give you the jug. And since my mini has a jug on it, I just had said, well, can I try to just give them any jug? They pro- they might not know what it looks like. And we thankfully rolled high and they, they took the jug and we left and 
we, we live to tell about it, but it was, there was a few times that session where it did not look good. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and my my PCs in the other in the other Tomb of Annihilation game are kind of in one of those situations right now, and you know due to some some tactical error errors on their on their part, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. And uh, I'm I'm a pretty kind DM who isn't out to try to kill my players, um, so I will nudge them in what I hope is the right direction um, for them. But I also honor the fact that sometimes PCs are playing their character and maybe their character doesn't have a very high wisdom or maybe they are very rash and um, reckless and that's their nature and that's who they are. And so to play that out, that does have consequences. So um, you've, you've allowed me to get away with my musical solve everything approach. Of <laughs> yeah, the bagpipes at, uh, at Camp Vengeance was was really, truly an inspired moment. It was pretty pretty amazing and yeah, it, it, it really felt like we might all die like, <laughs> it was a bad situation we are not in a good situation we might all die uh let me just start playing the bagpipes really loudly <laughs> and you rolled very well and that's and that's that's what helps that's makes the difference um and so i went with it and i think that I think that that is part of what is fun about this game is not really knowing what your PCs are going to do and having to adapt to that and just go with the flow. And it can be so much fun. Yeah. And I know Chris Perkins and other people who have written these books for, for D and D and written the rules and, you know, they make it very clear to, if you need to change things, mm-hmm. if something's written in the book and it, it's not working for the group or you just need it to be different for your game, feel free to change it. And I think the rules can be that way as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I appreciate you sharing all your experience of, I think that exposure to different systems also helps because it gives you ideas of how you can solve problems not so much in a a player trying to solve a problem but just sort of table management and dynamics that go on between players and between players in the dm it, it gives you additional tools of how you can solve certain situations that come up mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool absolutely yeah i i often think back on different systems that i've played and drawn those and dungeon world probably being the most because i just always keep going back to you know the simpler you keep things the better the game flows um but you know i think a lot about um the numenera system the cipher system which is great um i think about uh the I love Call of Cthulhu and the whole um, 
percentile dice uh, rolling. Um, that mechanic. I'm just laughing about our percentile dice fiasco and during the. Oh, that was amazing! It was it was truly bizarre. You were rolling, you were rolling so badly as far as weather and wind and um, it's just mundane. It was like four days later. Like, yep, you're still in the harbor because there's no wind. <laughs> I was like waiting for pirates to attack us. Like, what? Like. We're never going to finish this adventure. Our benefactor is going to be dead. Like, <laughs> this is not good. But, you know, it is. I, I wanted to do that because because um, I, I debated about this in my mind. It's like, well, I could say they get there in the predicted four days and nothing happens and it's smooth sailing. But I wanted to give there a little bit of tension. Like you have, like number one, you're paying these these dwarves to come with you. Um, you're paying per night, you know, or per day for that ship journey, um, <laughs> giving you a little bit of tension, a little things to be worried about, and, and, and um, a little bit more anxious about, and there is like a time factor for sure. Um, as far as trying to get the mission done, it does bring up a good point of you know as a as a GM, like if if you don't need players to roll, then don't have them roll. Mm-hmm. And if if you do ask for a roll, be aware that there's a range of options that can happen, and be willing to go with that. Right. So I mean, those situations can come up and. It sounds like, I mean, you have a very viable reason, like there's there's tension involved, there's different moving parts, but you had the option of, you could have just said like, yeah, you get there and moving right along. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. I think being purposeful with those choices is is important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So a, a final thing I wanted to definitely respect your time, because I know you're, we were talking before we started, very busy because when you're not running numerous campaigns and playing a bard in my campaign and doing all these other wonderful hobbies, uh, your professional job is a midwife. Right. You're delivering babies all the time. Yes. Yes. Which sounds like it. Uh, you have some amazing hours that you keep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I do have some interesting work hours. Uh, yeah, I'm a certified nurse midwife. So I'm an advanced practice nurse. So that's an RN who goes on to get a graduate degree in a specific uh, field. And so I chose women's health care and prenatal, postnatal and delivery care. And so that's essentially what a certified nurse midwife does. Um, so not only do I deliver babies, but I also do, you know, a wide range of gynecological care. Um, you know, I see patients that are teenagers. I see patients in their 70s. Um, so it's a pretty um, it's a pretty broad spectrum of uh, of people that I see on a day-to-day basis in my practice. And it does keep me really busy. And, uh, you know, I would say that 
I spend a lot of time, you know, not only working at my job, but, you know, keeping up with, you know, the latest in my field. So that involves a lot of, you know, reading, research and um, time outside of work invested in that that as well. So, um, so yeah, that keeps me, keeps me pretty busy. And um, it's one of the reasons why, while I would love to dedicate more time to gaming, I think that right now it's, I'm probably doing only as much gaming as I can. (laughs) Sure. You're doing a lot. (laughs) And I've, kind of pleaded my ignorance previously about just the term midwife and I, it could be just me and I, I feel like it's one of those terms that is misunderstood I think there's a lot of those terms in, in medicine I know I, I get that a bit when I talk with patients and they're like are you a psychiatrist are you a psychologist what's the difference um, I think with a physician a nurse practitioner a physician's assistant, midwife. I think a lot of those terms, just people don't really know what the differences are. Mm-hmm. And I think the midwife term is, I mean, I think you share with me before it just kind of goes back to old English or something like it, 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 I think it might just be misunderstood. And I appreciate you sharing with folks that it's, uh, and I even kind of stepped into that where I said, you know, delivering babies that it's a well, it goes well beyond that. Yes. Yeah, it does. It's really, you know, when people are like asking me, well, what is it? And I I tell people, well, a certified nurse midwife is is essentially, it's a nurse practitioner, really, um, who has a very specific specialty. Um, And uh, and the, the term midwife means with woman actually um it doesn't have anything to do with the uh the practitioner being a woman or a wife um it, it, the term just means with woman um so focusing on women's health yes exactly exactly mm-hmm. and i think sometimes i'm uh, my view of of that is a little shaded from when you're running games and it's like, yeah, I was up till three o'clock last night and there's a lot of babies coming <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and, you know, been very busy. Cause I think you're on call various times mm-hmm. and, uh, your, your work schedule is not predictable. It's not, it's not, it changes from week to week. I mean, there's some predictability in it, but certainly when you're on call, I could have nights that I, sleep through the night or I could have nights where I'm up. So, um, so it is a little unpredictable. Um, certainly, uh, my schedule is much better now than it was when I started out early in my career where I took a lot more call than I do now, but, um, but, uh, it's, it's a very rewarding profession and I enjoy it immensely. Um, and I, and interestingly enough, I feel that role playing actually really helps me in my job in many ways. Um, that's, I know that sounds wonderful strange. That because that was going to be my next question or like my final question is how does your training as a nurse midwife, how does that improve or affect your running of games? And on the flip side, how does running games help you in your professional work? I think, um, I think 
running games helps me in my professional work because when you're running a game, you kind of have to really be able to look at the whole picture. And certainly that is the case when you're working with one-on-one with a patient is you have to look at the whole picture and all the moving parts and keep that organized in your mind. So those skills are very, um, very, they kind of cross over a little bit. I also think that, you know, in our profession, we do have to maintain, you know, this strength, um, and uh, and ability to remain composed, even though sometimes we don't feel composed, um, just for the for the sake of the patient, you know, to make the patient comfortable and um, to be able to clearly communicate with the patient in a calm and reassuring manner. And interestingly enough, I think role-playing really helps with that. Um, It really helps, you know, being able to think, okay, I, you know, inside I might be feeling, you know, not so great about having to tell this patient something that isn't great news, but I am going to, you know, put on my you know, compassionate, um, very strong, um, understanding and empathetic provider role. And so going in and being that person who's there for the patient or the woman, their family, whoever, um, I think that role playing really helps with that. It really does. And, when I was in doing my undergrad, I worked with a lot of pre-med students, and I actually did pre-med when I was in my undergrad. Okay. And um, some of them, it's interesting, some of them chose to be theater minors, and I always thought... Interesting. Yes, it, it was such an interesting choice, and I thought, and it's such a good one, too. <laughs> it really is, because... In emergency situations, you really need to put on this, like, calm, reassuring attitude that you project onto the situation. And and being able to, you know, act in that way is really important to the people around you. Um, So... So, yeah, I think that I think it's a skill that you can totally bring into um, the profession. So, yeah, I mean, it almost goes back to what we were talking about, about what what do I want to do versus what my character would do? And it's like, well, you know, Jenna, the nurse is a little freaked out and baffled. But Jenna, the professional is totally calm and composed and knowledgeable. Right. Exactly. 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 And, you know, it's. You know, you know what to say, you know what's going on, you know what to do. It's just, it's being able to communicate that to the patient in a reassuring way, in a calm way, um, is, that's huge. It's huge for the patient and, um, and it's huge, again, for the staff around you to be able to do that. So um, it's almost like you put on a superhero role in a way, you know, it's, it's like, it's a different type of superhero. And, um, 
and it's 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 kind of cool actually so yeah it's, you know I'm, I'm not exactly in a medical prof- profession it's certainly a, a, a bit difference in my role as a psychologist but people are certainly coming to you to, to solve a problem to mm-hmm. guidance and you know you're you're certainly in that expert role so right and sometimes they are they are actually the people who I would say most of the time they are in this really transformative stage in their life where they're taking on a new role that's completely different for them. And being able to support that and help them and help lift them up into that role um, is, it's a very rewarding thing. And and just watching that transformation of them taking on this new identity in a way, you know, like becoming a parent or um, becoming a grandparent in some situations or a brother or a sister. Um, it's, it's very interesting. That's wonderful. That's mm-hmm. awesome. I really appreciate you sharing all that. And one of the things that you were talking about that and, and transferring those skills to a gaming environment of, you know, as the GM or DM, as you're thinking about how can I help the people at the table get into this role that they want to be in? How can I make you a better barbarian? How can I make you a better fighter? And I don't want to downplay what you just said, because it was beautiful. And I think that's great. But I think some of, I think there's some similarities of, you know, how can we, make decisions and focus on things to facilitate our players living better lives in their gaming session. If Mm -hmm. that makes sense, Mm -hmm. perhaps that's too much of a stretch. What do you think? I think that I am, since I started playing role playing games, I know it sounds cheesy and strange, but I feel like I'm actually better at communicating with people and more confident. Um, and, probably not quite as shy as I used to be. And yeah, I do think that you can learn new skills and to add to your own day-to-day life by role-playing. And we see that happening more and more where people are using that as a tool, um, you know, to help kids with social and emotional challenges and, um, you know, to help people who are going through trauma. So, um, I, I, I think it's, it's been great for me therapeutically and I, you know, I don't, I'll admit I don't always focus on trying to bring those things out in my PCs, but um, but certainly I think about it from time to time. So, well, I truly appreciate all the time that you've shared with with uh, me and, and the audience listening. If, if folks wanted to respond to some of these things, pick your brain. Are are you on the social medias? Can they get in touch with you? Yes, um, I am on Twitter, and, uh, you know, I never remember what my Twitter handle is, but I think it's Smart Rat. Let me see. It is. I'm looking at it right now. Is, are you? Okay, great. I'm horrible yeah. with social media, I got to admit. If you've been following me on Twitter, you, you would have seen me uh, drop uh, Smart Rat 02 
several times talking about recent games because you've been running games for me and some of our friends for, I don't know, a year or two? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, off and on, if not longer. So is it a zero or is it an O? Um, I think it is a zero. Smart Red it Zero is. Two. Oh. Mm-hmm. And what's the origin of that name? Smart Rat. So Rat is my, um, that's my Chinese astrological sign. Okay. <laughs> so. Excellent. Yeah. I like that. Awesome. Well, if, if people want to reach out to you, uh, I, I think you have a lot of great ideas about gaming mechanics and role playing. And I, I just always uh, fun to chat with you like before and after games about just different facets of the game, how things work and uh, like other interests that you have. So I appreciate your time and uh, I'm excited about uh, where we end up next in Chult. I know we're playing in April, so my character, the stone is, is getting ready for, you know, hopefully not the end of the line. Um, but you did convince me to keep my dog on board the ship. <laughs> so I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Dirk will be part-time rat catcher, part-time therapy dog for the crew. Um, yeah, my companion <laughs> animal. You're like, you know, it might be a good idea. I don't think Dirk's going to make it, so you might want to keep him in the ship. And I was like, really? Oh. <laughs> and I think I rolled. I think I rolled an animal handling check to make sure Dirk was okay with it. Yes. <laughs> You did. You did. Even uh-huh. though you were like, I really don't want a small little Yorkie wandering around the jungles of Chult. <laughs> it's not a Yorkie. It's a beagle. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, but thank you very much for your time and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Take care.